Greetings, folks. How you doing? This is Joe Driscoll, uh, back with another episode of the Salt City Grind. Uh, very excited about my episode today. But before we start, I just want to do a little housekeeping. For those of you who are uh, not as familiar with the podcast, I really want to uh, just give a shout out to my boy, Eric Barth, who, who has made me an amazing website. Um, for those who, who just you know, randomly stumble by on Facebook, I uh, recommend checking out the website, Salt City Grind. You can subscribe on YouTube, on, on um, you know, you can go to the Facebook page, YouTube, um, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, uh, and it'll be automatically uploaded. So a lot of people have asked me about it. Um, you know, you don't have to just catch it live on Facebook. You can, you can just subscribe on one of those different mediums and uh, get involved. But with that being said, uh, my guest today is Ed Griffin Nolan. And uh, um, he's written a book about hitchhiking. I'm very excited to have him on. We'll bring him in now. Ed, how you doing, sir? Great, Joe. How are you? Great, great, great. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you. I, I got to say, um, reading your book in the time of COVID, like I'm someone who is, who is fueled by exchanges with strangers. Um, it's kind of, kind of my energy source, like, you know, and... <laughs> Um, <laughs> not being able to do it during COVID, reading your book was like very, um, you know, living vicariously through your adventures. Well, cool. It's nice to take you there. Absolutely. So for those who haven't, uh, who, who are unfamiliar with the book, um, tell us, tell us about the new book you've written and, you know, uh, what the themes were and why, why you decided to write it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, right out of college, a bunny and I hitchhiked across the U.S. It was pretty common. It was 1978, and it was awesome. People took us in, uh, drove us, you know, past where they were going. It was just a really, really way, great way to engage with the country we were just getting to know uh, before we went and, you know, became grown-ups. So all these years I talk about this, and people would say, yeah, you can't do that anymore. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. I was like, why, why are we so afraid of just engaging with strangers. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and it's more dangerous for some people than others. But finally, two years ago, I just said, I'm just gonna do it. And I took off, I left my house, literally walked around the corner with a backpack and put my thumb out and just to see where it would take me. And I I, I made this, um, a friend of mine, Kim, made this sign for me. I just made a hashtag, uh, nobody hitchhikes anymore. <laughs> and I just stood, I made this sign. It stood on the side of the road like a fool for um, like 20 days, 18 days. And uh, it was great. People picked me up and I blogged about it. And then, um, you know, people liked the story. So I, I just kept writing about it and eventually published this book. Uh, last, it just came out last month. Nobody hitchhikes anymore, which isn't true. Unless I'm nobody. <laughs> but it was, it was an interesting comparison of the late 70s and the uh, mid-Trump era of uh, 2018, that's for sure. Very different. Yeah, yeah it, it is that, I, I think that's, um, that's, that's really an interesting aspect of it, comparing it to, to the, uh, to the journey before and the journey now. I, I was curious about, um, you know, when, when you said nobody hitchhikes anymore, you mentioned, um, I, I believe there was, you know, two or three anecdotes about people who you encountered who were also hitchhiking or, or trying to catch a ride in the air. But do you feel like, um, you know, how, how great of a decrease do you feel it is? Do you feel like it was, it was just so much more commonplace back in the seventies as, as compared to what you saw? Much, much 
more common. I think that more more people have cars. More people have cars that start without jumper cables or pushes, uh, and we've gotten really isolated. I mean, earbuds didn't exist in seventy. They're just coming in with a thing called a Walkman, I think. But right. we, we were more collective. We were more we were more joined. You know, we were not personalizing our iPhones. We didn't have tinted windows. We weren't, you know, uh, listening to our own music. When I turned on my music, you heard it. Um, so when I was going somewhere, I kind of knew there were other people going there. And there was one guy that I met on that trip called Gray. And he picked us up in Oklahoma City. And he, he actually took us on his motorcycle to his house one by one. Because my well. And, um, you know, we ended up crashing in his yard after he fed us. And then he drove us back to the highway in the morning. And he said to me, when I tried to thank him, he said, oh, we're all on the road sometime. And that just always stuck with me. And I, I've always wondered if that is still the case. And I've hitched all over the world um, since then in places a lot trickier than the United States. But um, I come back here and they tell me nobody hitchhikes anymore. So I went to find out and, and you know, people were awesome. It was an amazing adventure. Yeah. You, you mentioned that in the book, something that I really loved uh, again. And that's something, you know, I, I really related to the book, obviously, as I was saying to you in conversation before, because as a traveling musician for, for you know, the, a decade and a half, pretty much, uh, you know, the kindness of strangers, you know, I've, I've always uh, relied on the kindness of strangers, um, yeah. you know, much like yourself. And um, yeah, it, it was, uh, did you feel that, um, you know, there was, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to give away um, any spoilers, you know, but, but I feel like we have <laughs> That's to. That's okay. There was, there was I'm, a few. I'm still alive. So that answers the question most people want. <laughs> right. You made it back. But there were a few times in the book where you had to rely on other means of transportation beyond just hitching. I think there was like two bus rides or something or, you know, uh, did you feel um, were those like, was it crushing as you were as you know, as you went to like, you know, you realized you had to take an Uber or you realized you had to, you know, I, I know it was very seldom in the book, but I didn't know if you kind of viewed it as breaking the challenge that you had set for yourself, the points where you where you had to get rides. Yeah, well, the, the challenge was to, to, to be out with people and, and see if I, I could do this. And there were times where it was like, okay, it's been two days here and I can either sleep on the side of the road or pay for a motel or pay for a bus and, 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 and sleep my way through Utah, um, which is you know, what I did. So, no, I, I didn't miss that. I mean, there were times when I actually turned down rides. There were a couple of people that was just like my spidey sense was like, no, nah, I don't think I want to get in this vehicle. Um, but, no, for, for the most part, you know, there was one guy. The, the most consistent thing that happened was people took me farther than they planned to take me. Right. To go. So they just added, you know, in one case, 300 miles. The last guy, the guy that took me to San Francisco. And... He was an interesting case. And, you know, if you divide the world up into categories, he and I would be very far apart on a lot of things uh, politically. But he um, he was recently widowed and he was he was sleeping in the trailer in his yard because he couldn't stand to spend the night in his bed where after his wife died. And when that didn't work and he couldn't sleep in the trailer, he'd just pack up the little dog, itsy bitsy, and start driving. And he picked me up to kind of have somebody to talk to. And, and I was feeding the dog and we were chatting. And, you know, he was going to go to Winnemucca. Like, where's Winnemucca? Well, it's out there in the desert. And then he 
said, you know, I can get you to San Francisco by bedtime. And I was like, well, that's 300 miles out of your way. He goes, well, I'd like to see the ocean, you know. It's just like, but he was he was hurting. He was vulnerable. And I found that in making myself vulnerable, it really tended to draw other vulnerable people to me. And I mm. thought that was this is an interesting posture towards life. Like this guy is willing to pick me up. He had two weapons in the car, so he wasn't that bad. <laughs> but I had my little mace. But uh, th that happened again and again. People who had been widowed, people who had a lot of people dealing with addiction, who had recovered. Right. One guy who was out of prison, who was still recovering from that. Um, there were people who just needed to talk. And they needed to feel like they were doing something to help somebody. And, and so they did. Absolutely. Which similar to, but in some ways uh, different than than the 70s. You know, a lot more people hitchhiking in the 70s. There are more hitchhikers out west than there are in the east now. Um, the east is harder. New York is very hard to hitchhike in. Um, eventually got out of New York, but it took a couple of days. And then, um, but out west, there's there's definitely more hitchhikers than there are here in the east. Um, one of the things, I mean, there were like three or four people who said to me along the way, um, you know, this wouldn't work if you were black. And I was like, well, duh. Yeah, and it, it, but it really became apparent to me in even comparing that to 1978, because in, in the mid to late 70s, we were sharing the road a lot more equally between black folks and white folks. And it's really gotten like almost like people have given up. And, um, you know, like I was in a police car in Colorado at one point. And the guy cuffed me. I mean, he just cuffed me and drove me off into the middle of nowhere. He was going to help me out, I thought. But then I'm in the back of that car for about 15 miles, and I get left in the middle of nowhere. And I'm thinking, what would this be like if I wasn't, you know, this white guy? Um, and a number of people said that to me along the way. And a number of people felt very, very free to express their, their racial animosity and their prejudice. So, like, what was going on in country I mean, this is summer 2018 black lives matter move um at its first peak and um so it was it made me very very aware of the different dynamic that was at play yeah absolutely um so i'll i'll, I'll uh i'll read i'll read a quick passage from the book because that was that you kind of touched on the subject that i wanted to discuss with you a little bit so i'll, I'll read a little bit uh, from the book, um, you know, because that was definitely one of the hardest parts for me. So I, I remember, you know, being in a community meeting and, and people saying, wow, the country is so divided right now, you know, uh, it, around the same time period, 2017, 2018. And me saying, yeah, but, you know, America's been divided before and, and it's been worse than it is right now. And saying, you know, because I'm someone who, who feels they were kind of born in the wrong decade. I always wanted to be born in the 60s, you know, as, as a teenager and in my 20s, you know, a guy with an acoustic guitar. And so, you know, looking at years like 68 and saying, you know, that was that was way worse. And a lot of folks who were old enough to be in those 20s at that time period were like, no, this is this is way worse right now than it than it was then, even in those those signature years. And I'm sure in some ways it was more divided, in some ways more, you know, um, more united. But um, a, a lot well, of the way I put it in, in the late 70s, you had to be trying or at least appear to be and you you know it was like segregationists had lost 
George Wallace yeah. had been defeated and then was shot. But I mean, there there was not anyone that was going to make political hay or money by declaring themselves openly racist as there is today. And um, that played out on the ground too. I mean, I, I right. was hard with people who were viciously racist and I was in a bar with a group of people who were planning to go to a Klan bonfire that very night, Confederate flags and all. And it was, it was pretty scary. It was not, it was not as, uh, it was not as safe for me even as a, sort of a bearded uh, guy who has views, you know, to the left. Um, and I can only imagine if I had a complexion that I couldn't change. Right. So I'll, I'll read. I'll read some of the. This was this was kind of the, the toughest part of the book for me again because you like to think that the um, as as King said the you know the the arches it bends towards justice you know eventually but it feels like we're going in reverse on some. This is a little passage from your book. On the road in '78, I felt like part of something. The '60s and the '70s had been a humbling time. We as a people had been reminded again of our failings. And as Joe and I crisscrossed the country that summer, we had a sense of people trying to be better. We knew that we could do a lot better by one another. At least we felt we should give it a good try. When Joe and I got a ride with a Mississippi farmer who used the N-word, just like any other word in normal conversation, it was not a stretch to think of him as a dying, as a dying breed. Today, I don't feel so sure. On this trip, I saw frightening evidence of empowered and emboldened racism. A chunk of the white population, and I can't know how large that chunk is, feels like they have had enough. They don't need to use the N-word. They have their own tribe, their own grievances, their flags, and a leader in the most powerful office in the land, one they believe has their back. In 78, Joe and I saw a good number of African-American hitchhikers. We were picked up by black drivers, shared rides in the roads with quite a few. It was very normal, but not this time. Only one black man, a, a veteran amputee who chose not to share his name, and no black woman shared the roadside with us, and no black drivers picked me up. Two white drivers made overtly racist comments, and two drivers mentioned with a certain sadness that they didn't think I would have any luck hitchhiking in their neck of the woods if I weren't white. Through 15 states, I didn't share the road with a single black driver. That's really, it really bums me out, you know. Um, it's it's tough to, you know, like I said, you try to think of America as a place that's making progress, heading towards a more perfect union. Um, and in your experience in 78, in your experience, in, so that's, what, 40 years later? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and how, yeah, yeah, and this was who am I to argue with Dr. King? I, I think he might have had a bad day. That the arc of you know the struggle goes in the direction we bend it. Right. You got to remember that. You know, I've had so many people that I knew from years back say, "Well, I thought we fought for that. I thought we did that," referring to some mystical '60s or '70s experience. And it's not. This is life is struggle. You know, they're 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 powerful interests that are looking to go for things to go their way. And to think that, you know, I mean, Civil War was followed by Reconstruction and then was followed by Jim Crow. It didn't go in one straight line in, in any way. And we we forget that at our peril, right? No, absolutely. I, I feel I feel absolutely that's that, that's a great point, you know, because we uh, in reading some of that, you know, like you're saying, after the Civil War, um, there was there was, you know, this there's this kind of like you said, there's this 
image we have in our minds of this straight line of, of everything just moved towards progress right after that. And there was such a heavy clap back after the Civil War of, um, you know, overt racism and, and outright attack and, and, and stuff that went on for long stretches of time. So I think you're right. I think it's, yeah. it's, it starts and there's there's. You know, I think, um, you know, comparing 78 to 2018, I think you, you caught a you caught a rough uh, <laughs> a rough time period to take the temperature. Well, we got, yeah, we got to keep bending it. Yeah, there's a there's a writer at Lemoyne. I'm ashamed to say I can't remember his name. I have the book somewhere in this room. It's called The Wars of Reconstruction. And it talks just about that, a counter-revolutionary terrorist force of thousands and thousands empowered by uh by politicians that that were you know it was a reign of terror against newly empowered blacks in in the south so yeah it's no it's no straight line it's it, it goes in the direction we bend it and it's a lot of struggle but i wasn't i mean i and I, i'm talking more politics with you here in these moments than i did on the whole trip i just wow. listened to people and people really wanted to talk people really really want to talk and it will give you a real sense of you know the difference between life on the coast and places that are doing really well. And then in places like Peoria and uh, Craig, Colorado and, and coal country in Kentucky that are, that are really hurting. And it's not just that they're hurting, it's they're hurting and misunderstood and neglected. And I fit Syracuse kind of in between those, right? Because right. this basically took my senses of a Syracusean with me. And I found that a lot of people could relate to the notion of Italic, what is it, Mike Strickland's books, as we're, we're, we're sitting on the edge, you know, it's like any moment we could tip one way or the other. And um, and I think a lot of people in the country feel that, and they feel that particularly the people in a lot of positions of power and culture don't understand that. And you certainly get to understand that when you're down on the road. And, and you know, I'm, I'm on the road because I have the, the time to do it, and I'm at a point where I don't need to be you know working every day to survive but a lot of the people on the road are there because they're they're really needy they, they need yeah. a way to get from point a to point b so you get talking to those people and you see particularly along um well there are stretches in omaha but also stretches in western new york with the way the heroin and opioid epidemic has just hollowed out some of those communities it was just story after story after story of families devastated by opioids was really telling. Yeah, you 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 talk about that in the book. Um, you know, you refer to that stretch as like a heroin highway, where it seemed like pretty much every every person you were encountering had some story of of opiate struggle or, or something going on. And was that a real eye opener for you? I mean, were you were you shocked by the amount of people that you encountered that that were struggling with the same issue? Uh, I wasn't shocked that that it was there, but that the openness with which people talked about it. You know, this one guy who was completely silent and he was in this ready old loud truck that it turned out he was driving because his battery died in his motorcycle he didn't like driving trucks he was nearly killed in a truck accident once and he's telling me all this as he takes me all the way to the pennsylvania border like 40 miles past where he was going but he points over at this park and he says that's where my uncle died you know and his uncle died with a um i think it was a fentanyl laced heroin injection in his neck and uh, his mother's on oxy just for the rest of her life she does nothing but watch tv and, and down oxy because she had shoulder surgery you know and it's just a town after town after town where you see this you know the good jobs went the jobs that are left don't have health care they don't have enough for us to get by 
someone gets injured, they get on drugs, and then they find other drugs. And um, so that, you know, the fact that people talked about that almost like it was the weather um, in certain parts of the country, you know, Peoria, in the bus station in Peoria, I think I described that. Uh, and, and Peoria is, for some reason, a little behind us. They're big and their epidemic was meth at the time. But it was just like this whole section of town that's just taken over by people dealing with this horrible addiction. So it was, it was um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in New York with a lot of the, the different uh, uh, addiction epidemics that the city's gone through, but I don't think I expected as much all the way across the country as what I saw. Yeah. Yeah, and you talk a lot about, um, as well as, as you just touched on in that about, you know, I, I once wrote a lyric about, you know, industry towns without industry, you know, and, and, and kind of the, the American experience of, of um, you know, because that's, that's something I think for those who, who haven't traveled a lot, I think a lot of people from this region of upstate New York with Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse feel like it's a uniquely upstate New York experience to have this. But um, what was your experience with, with other cities throughout America? You know, how did they... Uh, compare and contrast with, with the Syracuse as far as that dynamic of of rust belting. Did you feel the story was the same? Most of these kind of you know rust belt cities, it, 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 with some variation. Like Peoria was just learning that Caterpillar was leaving, and Caterpillar was their carrier, so right. it's catching up. But they're slipping. They've been losing population the same way we have, losing part of it to the burbs and part of it to other parts of the country. Um, Erie is similar and uh, that, and one of the things was interesting, this woman who picked me up, who's uh, taking her kid the next day in for heart surgery. She picks up this strange guy on the side of the road, and I forget her, Morgan, and drives me all the way to Ohio. She went 20 miles out of her way. And um, after another woman had dropped me off with four kids in the minivan, and it was a great day, but she... Um, you know, she was talking about one of the things that made her town interesting was all the people who've come there from all over the world. And then I started looking it up and, you know, towns like Syracuse, Utica, that have opened their arms to strangers um, tend to be surviving and starting to grow a little bit in terms of population and maybe an economic base. And uh, Peoria was not. Peoria wasn't doing that. So I had to wonder what Peoria's rabbit in the hat is going to be. Um, so that, that, that was definitely different there. And then you get out west where it's, it's resource extraction, right? And you get into uh, the coal. And Colorado, as the coal uh, industry is shutting down, the question is, what's going to happen? So the guy who's driving me into Craig, Colorado, has a pension from when he worked in the mine. So he's cool. He's okay. But the one he's driving, his second job is driving people to medical care. She's got nothing. You know, she had a job. She worked in a store. And, and when he dropped her off, it was public housing, but it was the worst shanty town that I think I've seen in West Mississippi. And there's just all these people hanging out on the porches of these really rundown former motel that's now public housing. And, you know, I started to realize that she, she was um, Val and he was Richard. And I thought, you know, this town's looking at a lot more Val and not much Richard. And I thought, people especially people from the east and and those of us who think we might know a thing or two really really look at those communities and say what what do what does the future hold for them not just you know you should learn to code 
But, you know, what do you do when the coal mine goes away? The environmental organizations in Craig, Colorado depend on the coal industry, okay? Everybody depends on the coal industry there. And, you know, places in Kentucky similarly. And it reminded me when I was covering the fracking controversy here in New York State and going down and meeting farmers in Pennsylvania and in, in the southern tier. And there was this one guy who depended on the check from the oil company for his heart medicine, $51,000 a year that was keeping him alive. Why? Because he closed, he didn't have health insurance anymore. And so we've got to look at these communities and say, hey, what is there besides telling them, yeah, it's bad to frack and yeah, it's bad to mine coal. And it's like, that's a given, but where where's the sustenance? Where's How are their communities going to survive? You can't do as a certain president recently said to upper New York, as he referred to us, well, you should just leave. Can't do that. They love the place too much. Absolutely. Well, I also I also wanted to touch on, you know, one of the, one of the things that struck me in the book was, you know, you talk at one point about, um, you know, the I forget the guy's name was Jimmy Cook. There was a, a, a famous hitchhiker. Billy Billy Cook, who was a serial killer, and then we, and then you, you go into the, um, you know, the, um, the Twilight Zone, and I think all of us had, you know, whether it was some camp TV show or a, a camp story that kids told each other about the hitchhiker. There was always kind of this, you know, this mythology around the hitchhiker, and yet asking people in, in law enforcement, there was no real cases that anyone could even remember in their years on the force of, of a hitchhiker doing something like that. And so I guess, um, and, and then, you know, you noted it in the book about, you know, there's no, um, there's no Twilight Zone episode about the Morgans, but, you know, these people who, who drove you 200 miles extra, went out of their way, drove two hours beyond where they said they were going to, and two hours back just to be nice for the guy who took you on his motorcycle. So, I was, you know, a lot of what struck me about the book, and I had another question about something similar about that, about, you know, perception and fear um, versus reality and, and some of that. So, you know, how, how did, um, how, and I guess I'd wonder how that compared in 1978 to how it compared in 2018. Well, in 78, one, I had a friend along, my friend Joe, and uh, so that makes a different dynamic. Two, I was young, the world, you know, it's like, I didn't know what danger was necessarily, right? So, you know, I thought I was sort of clear-eyed at this point. My wife would disagree. But um, what strikes me, I mean, you talk about Billy Cook. Billy Cook is this guy. He was, you know, the breaking news for a week in the 30s, and he was a bad guy. And he hitchhiked, and he killed people. But his issue wasn't transportation. He wasn't killing people because he was a hitchhiker. He was going to be but um, he persists in the national imagination, right? Um, and there are cases of people. I mean, there's a, there was two young ladies from upstate New York that, that were killed in 1985 in Florida by hitchhikers. But I'm not telling people to hitchhike to overcome your fear of hitchhiking. There's, there's no reason to be, I mean, it's probably not a great idea. I wouldn't advise my daughter, although she's hitchhiked all over the world. The issue that I have is stranger danger. We teach our kids to be afraid of strangers, of strangers because they're going to kidnap them. But whenever there's a kidnapping of a child, the child is kidnapped by a non-custodial parent or a relative. When we, you know, we teach kids to be wary of people touching them, 
and always this focus on the stranger. And the stranger is not usually the problem. It's the relative who's groom or the scoutmaster, unfortunately, the pastor. And, you know, the same thing happens with, 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 with women. Um, we teach women to be afraid of strangers when the most dangerous man in their life is the one they're most intimate with. So the nature of, of, um, of, of, of violence and threats is, is a lot more up close than we want to acknowledge, but it's easier to project that fear on the stranger, right? And that's the brilliance of right-wing fanatics. Let's, it's that Mexican, it's that black guy, it's this other, it's this other all the time. And instead of like looking at what the real dangers are, yeah, I, I, I just, I just enjoyed the book so much because it just resonated with so much. Like I said, I, as a traveling musician, it was just every week was I was, I was blown away by some new kindness from some new stranger. Pretty much, eighty percent of my, you know, I didn't travel. I traveled one man with a backpack and a guitar. That was the bulk of my traveling. Wow. You know, I had a little loop pedal in the case, and that was it. Just off on the road, one man with an acoustic, and and uh, and and you know the road, and uh, found the same thing. You know, and when I travel, you know, I'd be in in these places, and they say, whatever you do, don't go to this area. Don't go to this area. Don't and even go don't right there. That's <laughs> where I went right away. You know. Whatever you do, don't eat the local vendors. Like, don't eat the local restaurants. Okay, which restaurant's the best on this strip? You know, and I would, I would always run right into uh, to all that stuff. And I mean, um, again, I, I was young, and and you know, um, I'm, I'm probably very lucky I didn't catch some, you know, some bugs along the way eat, eating out of, uh, you know, roadside vendors all over the world. You know, but. Um, but you know, like you're saying, mathematics. So I'll read another little clip from the book because I really loved. You were in a conversation with this character Bill uh, that you meet on the road, and and he's kind mm -hmm. of, yeah, and he's kind of advising you to uh, be careful, be careful. He's 99 years old. How old? He's 99. He's 100 101, I guess. He didn't get there by being foolish, right? Um, what Bill said next got to the core of it, though. The culture is so much more dangerous, he warned me. The culture. The culture breeds fear and exaggerates the dangers we face. Yet fear is the dominant emotion in our personal and national lives. Where does all this fear come from? From which crack in our national psyche does this misinformed fright ooze? Fear of the unknown is innate. Born into each of us is a fear of the other, another species, another people. A startle reflex kicks in, puts us on alert, tells us to back away and survey our surroundings rather than to lean forward and embrace the new arrival. It's always a balancing act between the animal brain that wants to keep us alive, to hunt one more day, to produce one more offspring, offspring and the bigger part of us, our heart and soul, that wants to join in, to bond, to experience something even bigger than our tiny selves. And, and I thought that was really a great, I mean, that that one paragraph really captures a lot of the spirit of the book and a lot of the spirit of, I feel like, why you were, you know, on the road um, with it, you know? So, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? You know, I, I, I actually Googled it after reading the book and the Brennan Center has a study that shows like violent crimes are down like 50%. What? since 91 so since 1991 we've had a 50 percent reduction in crime and yet everybody's scared to death yeah. everybody's so much more scared 
today than they were certainly in 1978, certainly in 1991. Uh, we've never been more afraid. So, I mean, what do you, in your in your mind, what do you think, um, I guess, two-part question, where do you think, if you had to guess, where does this, what is the crack in our national psyche that this fear is pouring in? And, and well, what can we push back, you know? Well, part of it is leadership. I mean, you, you can lead people to see what are our real problems and how we confront them together. Or you can divide people and say, you know, our problem is that guy, let's go get him. Um, that's part of it. But where does it come from? Well, there's a lot of change. People are afraid of change. Right. I don't think that the relative level of comfort that people live in um, makes us less likely to rub up against people who are different from us, right? So we're independent. Like people work out in their own home instead of going to the gym. They watch their own show on this monster TV instead of going to the movies. People, they got the earbuds in. They got the tinted windows. And um, there was this one kid who so desperately wanted to help me on the side of the road in Nebraska. And he's slowing down, slowing down. I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to be able to get out of here tonight. And he's got the window open like this far. And he's trying to hand me two dollars. I'm like, I don't need the money. I need a ride. I need are you going to Denver. And he was like, No, I'm not doing that. But I want to help. I'm not, you know. But I did think like he'd probably never had the experience that helped him to step beyond that fear. And I think as society gets more apartheid, like we get broken up into smaller and smaller and distant groups. And nobody lived in a development in 1978. Well, maybe some people did, but we lived in things called neighborhoods, right? right weren't cul-de-sacs, they were intersections. And there was more connection in everyday life. You know, I used to say, I, I didn't know until I was out of college that cars started without jumper cables. You kind of depended on one another for, for everyday life. And I think as society has gotten more affluent um, and more unequal, you get people who are much more used to um, taking care of themselves or having AAA take care of it or some insurance company rather than their neighbor helping them. And then you have the people who have next to nothing, which is the way our city is so divided between have and have not. But people don't bump into one another the way they used to, right? People don't, you know, they take a highway, not a street. They go watch a movie in their living room, not downtown. So I, I think that as our has gotten more affluent for a lot of people it's also divorced us from the reality of a lot of other people and then you get scared yeah actually you have to really intentionally i think in this country try to reach out to be with people who are different because we are such a segregated society both by class and race in a lot of ways yeah absolutely and as a as a musician i've seen it so much so you know it's really uh, I really, I really have a hard time not, not feeling like, oh, the good old days, just reminiscing on when, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, I, I'm sure you remember, but like, you know, a place like Stylene's Rhythm Palace in like the late 80s and early 90s was just like, you'd have five, 600 people a night, every night, Wednesday, Thursday, no masks. Friday, yeah, no masks, but, you know, three or four nights a week, just packed yeah. in the bar. To hear local bands playing and blah blah and now it's like you know i get people asking me to stop playing so they can like listen to the jukebox you know it's like it's like the appreciation has i hate to be like that but i think it's a lot of what you're you know i 
I'm, it's interesting to hear you attribute it to that because a lot of it is, you know, what I think about as well, which is, you know, people are so used to having YouTube or Netflix and like they don't want to have to pay attention to what you're spinning. You know, they're used to like calling up entertainment on demand by themselves and an yeah. isolated experience. And it's like really a real challenge. You know, I think to um, our technology is evolving in 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 ways that's, I think, impeding a lot of our humanity. And I, I think, you know, I think you you've probably hit a lot of the nail on the head with that. Yeah, so I just kind of wanted to throw myself out there and see what was there. And and there was just so many great people. There were just so many awesome people that that I met along the way, wise people and kind people and just interesting people, you know. Yeah. Well, there was, you know, you said what just before we started the interview, you said the kind of the two main themes of the book that uh really resonate with you and 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 stick out in your mind, things that uh the the uh perhaps they don't play as heavy in the actual because you're just you know you're telling stories um about the the encounters that you had um so perhaps yeah, it looks is, a lot more fun than this conversation for anyone that's listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, we're having fun but i mean we're into the heavy analysis of it but the book kind of is a story yeah yeah it is it's fun it's a lot of fun it's it's you know like i was saying beforehand i really loved it because i always just read such heavy stuff yeah. and um and, and you know, you not that not that the book was light in the sense that it, it was frivolous or it was just you know it wasn't a Hallmark movie, you know, it wasn't just something simple. But the the uh, messages came in through osmosis, kind of through these stories um, that you've told. But you said you know one of the things that resonated with you was was vulnerability, you know, and and there's a part where you talk about well people interact, but it's always you know, they get their insurance squared up first and they have an organization that, you know, takes them to another neighborhood or whatever it is, you know, um, and kind of that, that um, the, the risk and, and the fear are kind of what helps spin the gold on part of your journey. So maybe you could, you know, talk about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, getting out and not knowing what was coming next really was, was, it kept me open. I think it's one of the things that might keep me younger in my years. And um, I don't, you know, there's there's value to routine, but it's not all that there is in life. And so to to have randomness, I mean, the, the, random is a term that gets used a lot more now, but it doesn't really get used in the proper sense, right? That the random is like, what's going to happen next? You know, I mean, we have digital timepieces and, and Google calendars telling us what's going to happen. There's no random. And yet there is, you know, there, and then, like you said, people pick their own playlists. They don't turn on the radio to see what Dave Frazino is going to put on. And um, I kind of like that. I, I like Dave. I like, I like and, and it's just a different thing when you're kind of in control, when you're driving the car, if the, is reliable and you got enough money for gas you pretty much know where you're going to get and with gps you can almost say down to the minute when you're going to get there and this is just a different approach life. and by the way this is how most of the people in the world live you know we forget how privileged we are in this country i mean if you've ever been to central america and you know waited for a bus or a ride you you think it could take four hours it could take four days you know yeah you don't know what's going to happen and so there are people who live that way, have to live that way all 
time, right? And so it's it's not like it's going to another world. It's almost like it's going to the real world. Yeah. So maybe maybe expand on that. You know, you said that um, I, I know from the book jacket that um, you haven't only hitchhiked in America. Where else have you adventured? You know, beyond uh, beyond the U.S. Um, I've hitchhiked across Argentina and Chile and Peru. Um, I was in Iraq and uh, had to hitchhike. I kind of got lost and needed a ride across Baghdad and got picked up by revolutionary uh, <laughs> guards. I was not expecting that, but uh, they were very confused, but we got delivered. Um, in Nicaragua during the war, the public transportation was decimated by the, the blockade. And um, so you pretty much had to hitchhike everywhere. And it became really dangerous for people because, you know, out in the war zones um, during the Contra war, Families had to decide whether they were going to take a risk in getting on a, a military vehicle, which was just transporting troops. It wasn't going to combat or anything, but um, they could easily get ambushed and there could be landmines. And so, you know, hitchhiking was life and death there uh, for, for different reasons. Um, hitchhiked in Canada. I've hitchhiked in Europe across France and Switzerland. And uh, I think that's about it. My kids have hitchhiked through half of Africa and uh, South America, and you usually find out the stories afterwards. But so far, so good. They're all back. Yeah. So, who are who are uh, from from this past journey through the U.S.? Who are what are what are the um, you know the the characters that resonate most with you, or or the experience? You know, if you had to say, I, I think you know maybe I'm just feeling a little insecure because you said we got a little heavy, and I'm 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 analyzing the no you know, no. <laughs> What were some of the, uh, you know, more memorable adventures on this journey? You know, if you want to tell, uh, relay an anecdote or two. Oh, man, there was this guy, James, who's just like my hero. In fact, I talked to him just a couple of weeks ago, and we stay in touch. And he, he's a guy from Kentucky who he might have finished high school, but I don't think he actually did. I think he went back later and got his GED because he wanted to play baseball. So he's in eastern Kentucky, what he calls the purdy part of Kentucky, and he goes to Florida to play baseball. And when that goes, you know, as far as it's going to go, he comes back and he becomes a tile mason. He's a really good tile mason. So he's over in Italy learning from these old guys and he's doing all this stuff. But he just has this amazing capacity to learn and to listen to people. He he just asking me all about New York and he's not afraid to be ignorant. He's not. He's like, oh, I haven't been to New York. I need to know. People in New York hate Muslims. I'm like, no. We hate terrorists. I mean, I know what he's talking about. I mean, we get into that whole conversation because I've lost family in the trade center. I have Muslim relatives. So I tell him my story. He tells me his story. And he he um, worked with a lot of Mexican workers because now the whole of Kentucky, the horse industry in Kentucky is all Mexican workers. So everybody has Mexican neighbors in Kentucky. Uh, but the guys that he works with, he really respects because he listens to them. And they tell their stories of the hard work it is to get here. And, um, you know, he, he's listened to the one guy he really admired because the guy could speak two languages besides the English he was learning. And he and his friend decided that their second language, which was probably Nahual, was what he called hillbilly Spanish. And I, <laughs> that. And I said to James at one point, I said, so where are people from? Because there's one black guy in his whole town, right? Where are people from where you live in eastern Kentucky? And he says, man... <laughs> People have been here so long, they don't know what they are. 
<laughs> it was like he had a sense of that. Like he knew that that he'd like to know more of the world. But everywhere he went, he went out west and he found himself with Native American people and asked them questions. He ended up in Amsterdam and he just starts talking to these Russian guys and drinking with them. And he just wants to know the answer to the question. So then he tells me he got really mad and got himself elected to the school board in his town. Now right. he's chewing tobacco. He's spitting it out. And, and he's talking to me about his moonshine recipe and he's from Eastern Kentucky and he's never gone to college. Why does this guy want to get on the school board? He said, because it really pisses him off that every time there's a budget crisis, they want to cut the arts program. I'm like, boom. I love it because you yeah. don't know. There's a saying in Spanish, cada cabeza es un mundo. In every mind, there's a world. Mm. And, and that to me, James was like my hope for America, that we might actually be able to stop slicing and dicing and categorizing one another and just stop and listen to one another. And um, yeah, he's, he's a pretty cool guy. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that part of the book. I totally related because, you know, the same um, traveling. And, and I guess I, I take that too, because I think during the during the encounter with James, you say, um, you know, you guys talk about, you know, things like that, about, you know, the arts programs and this, that and the other. But you dare not ask um, who he voted for in the presidential or whatever. And it's just kind of like he doesn't ask you what you think of Trump. You don't say what you think of Trump. Uh, he doesn't. Because it's I don't want I don't want that or any other individual, particularly that individual, to be the center of my relationship with anyone. So you might have voted for Trump, Joey. Who knows? But I'm not going to hold that against you. But, but I'm joking. But it's my prerogative. I won't tell. Trump manipulated us into another reality doesn't mean that we can't get back to who we are and what's important to us. And I, I saw that potential with, with people like James. Absolutely. And that's what I searched for as well. So I'll just, I'll go to, um, you know, cause it, it was kind of like, uh, I, I love, there's a line in the wire where he says it, it just sits there like a bad pierogi on the plate, you know, and it just, no, nobody touches it, you know, and it felt kind of like, that that was also kind of um, you know I I relate to your sentiment about Trump because I, I definitely had this feeling uh, early on that um, you know the Simpsons had that joke of where where the billboards came to life and the only way you could kill them was to stop paying attention you know it was it was one of the Halloween episodes like all the advertisements were, were coming at them at least it's like just don't look at them and then they all you know they all started falling over and dying. And I felt the same way about Trump especially early on before he'd won the primary and before he'd, you know, become the candidate and all that stuff. And so, you know, throughout my time, um, throughout these last three or four years, I've kind of just, you know, um, realizing that, you know, it's a no win situation with him in so many ways because he's trying to get attention and, and by engaging with it in any way, shape or form, you're kind of playing into the game, whether you're supportive of it or you're against it, you're talking about it and it's dominating the conversations. But still, it, it felt kind of like an undercurrent um, for a lot of the book. It's hard, it's hard for any of us to write about the American experience throughout these last three, four years without that being a major theme. So I'll just read a, um, a couple of, of parts from the book. At one point, you're in an Uber with a guy and, and the conversation starts going sideways. And you say to him, so you like Trump? You're a fan? I ask him, and immediately I feel silly. Melvin does something I will never forget. 
He takes he takes his right hand off the wheel, starts thumping his chest, and says, "Trump, I am Trump. Trump is me." Um, and there's also the anecdote about you mentioned Will, who took you to uh, uh, San Francisco, and and you guys, you know, have a good conversation. You hang out, uh, and then you Facebook friend each other afterwards, and then you say, "Facebook Will posts about things other people." posts things that other people have compiled. He doesn't seem to get a lot of attention. He thinks mosques should be shut down and Muslims should be banned from Congress. He'd like to see Donald Trump reelected and followed in the White House by his namesake son. I don't know how deep these ideas rest in him. Could be just a rebellious side for him, or it could be a whole lot worse. But I'm going to keep hitching, keep trying to find out. If you see me, stop if you can. If not, I'll try to wave. Maybe you'll be out there on the road one day, and I'll try to re remember what it was like and remember to stop. So I just I found that really interesting because, uh, as myself, I'm someone who uh, you know obviously transitioning from hanging with strangers and playing music and playing guitar for people late night on the acoustic and having a, a, a good old time to politics. And I, I hate the divisive nature of it. I hate the partisan nature of it. I hate the belief that um, we can't cross this divide that, you know, in a divided America uh, that we can't cross the divide. Um, I, I refuse to believe it. But then in so many ways, it's like you see something like, um, you know, like this guy sharing that, that mosques should be banned in America and, and, and Muslims shouldn't be allowed to serve in Congress. And, it, you know, I, I, I was reminded of the, the Baldwin quote, James Baldwin quote, that you and I can disagree and still be friends unless our disagreement is, you know, you deny me my human rights. You deny me my, my decency. Right. And then we can't be friends. Like we can't disagree. We can't agree to disagree and go back to being friends. If what we disagree about is you believe you don't believe I should have rights and I should have human decency. And I just wonder, you know, how, how that played out in your adventures and, and you know, how you felt about all that, because it was obviously like with someone with James, with someone like Will that, you know, that um, I, I mean, it didn't come into play, but it seemed like, so I, I guess, how did you navigate the whole Trump factor as you were, as you were exploring these parts of, you know, I, I know once you get outside of the city, man, it's a lot of flags. There's, there's a lot of support out there and, and, and kind of encountering this. How did you balance that as you traveled trying to make friends, but also feeling like, oh, I've got to speak up here in, in certain times. Well, my, my role was just to listen. You know, I, and I had a lot of experience in this as a reporter. Um, so I was, and, and I was open with people that I'm taking notes and then I'm, you know, and sometimes recording and I want to know, you know, what's going on out here. So, um, and, you know, I took everyone's picture. I gave them a, a, a hashtag and a sticker and, a, and a, these cool bracelets. And so they knew how to follow me if they wanted to. So it wasn't. I wasn't keeping from anybody the ability to, to know what I was doing or what I thought, but I wasn't there to, to argue. And really, with the exception of Melvin, nobody was being obnoxious and, and the clans people in the bar, but I wasn't engaging with them or looking for a ride. I was looking to get my beer and pizza and get out of there. Um, but um, I mean, Melvin, I, I just asked him one question that he couldn't answer. And I realized, you know, he was off his rocker and, you know, with Will, I thought there's a lot of people out in the West that don't know who Donald Trump is, but they know who he isn't. 
Um, and he isn't all these people who are always telling them they're stupid. And all these people who always tell them they know better than them. So he, he's a guy who made his money as a mining engineer his whole life. He seemed really good at it. He knew where every mineral in the desert was. And he'd been dragging it out and selling it for 50 years. And, you know, I don't know who has a graduate degree that works at the Bureau of Land Management in, in, in Washington, but I don't know that Will should have to pay a lot of time listening, spend a lot of time listening to them. And I think that's what he felt, like, just get out of my way and let me do this. And he said, and maybe now with Trump, they will. And there's all sorts of good reasons why you don't just let people like Will go dig things up, right? You have regulations. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's probably a little tired after 50 years of having all, you know, a government that's in the East regulating the West. And so, I mean, I learned some things, you know, listening to him. And I also had people who, you know, in the middle of Indiana who really, really were scared of the whole Trump phenomenon and talked to me about it almost in a whisper. This one guy in his own car, Steve, he's like whispering that he hopes that the Mueller investigation is going to bring down Trump, you know, <laughs> like Steve, we're in your car, you can talk, you know, but so it was, there were people, but my answer to your question, my role was really to listen. Right. And that's what I did. And then I wrote Amen. it down. Amen. So, um, you know, we're, we're coming in on, on around an hour now. So I, I try to wrap out. Is, is there anything, you know, I, one thing I forgot to mention um, in the story was was the bracelets, which was really cool. Yeah. My but, friends, Michelle and Wilson, got these bracelets. I don't have one with me. Uh, I had the hashtag on the sign, but they put the, the website, which is nobodyhitchhikesanymore.com. And, and it said thank you on the inside. And so I would just give everybody the bracelet. And that was the cool thing. James, I thought I had it here with me, but I don't. Uh, I gave James the sticker. Jess Novak gave me a bunch of stickers that said "Counting on Love," and I would give them to some people who seemed like they would appreciate it. And then James goes, oh, "I got one just like that." He goes in his truck and he hands it to me and says, "Don't be a dick." And I was like, "Yeah, pretty much." But um, yeah, the, we we had uh, I gave away a lot of bracelets along the way and uh, met a lot of great people. Some of them I stay in touch with, and, and some of them I don't I don't know where they are. Um, well, I I. Really, Will's. I was really sad. Will's little dog that sat on my lap the whole way across the desert uh, in the mountains uh, died a couple of months after uh, our trip. So he he said, uh, "I think she was grieving for the wife." Which yeah, he was doing when he picked me up. So it's really, you know, you, you kind of make a connection. And what what struck me as compared to our the national attitude of always having to be tough was that if you make yourself vulnerable, people sometimes respond in kind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anything else you want to relay? I mean, I was I was shocked that the book was only four dollars on on uh, Kindle. I, that's a low price point there, buddy. I don't set the prices, but this is not four dollars. This is uh, <laughs> it's available at Salt City Coffee and Barnes and Nobles and Amazon and the Spa 500. I'm I'm old school. I read paper books. But yeah, if you want to do it on a Kindle? You can. It's uh, it's four bucks. You say that's pretty good. I tend to I tend to um, uh, read dominantly. I for some reason the last few years I I wake up at odd hours and I'll, I'll wake up at you know from three to four I'll be unable to sleep and then I 
I, I read my Kindle. I don't want to turn the lights on to wake up, wake up my wife and stuff. So I'll read the Kindle in, in the dark. And, and uh, so that's how I tend to read the bulk of my stuff. But yours, I actually, I actually, one of the rare ones I actually read in paper book, paperback, uh, you know, the, the one that I got from you. But uh, everybody, I, I really can't recommend the book highly enough. It was so fun um, during COVID where you're deprived from, from uh, the joy of stranger danger that I love so much to uh, to live vicariously and, and enjoy the adventures. And it was really, you know, and like you said, despite our, our talking about the uh, the underlying philosophical themes of the book, the book itself is, is a very page turning light read and it's really fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thanks. I'll, uh, I'll see you if you ever start playing live again, I'll be there. Yeah. I'm thinking about bringing back some of the, the online concerts, even though that's, that's it's it's a poor substitute for the real thing though i must say well you don't get the feedback it's like being a writer yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're just throwing it down and you're like i wonder where this is going well and i was surprised by the book to find out that you play a little uh, little act yourself maybe we'll have to get together and uh, play a little springsteen when the world goes back online it's uh, be careful what you ask for <laughs> <laughs> good to see you my brother Thanks so much. Everybody get the book. Uh, Nobody Hitchhikes Anymore. The, the title is ironic because Ed does hitchhike. So pick up the book now. Ed, thank you for coming and spending this hour with me. I really appreciate it, brother. It's great. Take, Take care, care, my friend.